my first reaction was I wish it had been around when my kids were little. I just knew as a mom that it was something that I could really have used and that would have been so beneficial to my kids and that it was definitely something that had been lacking in their life. You know, they had sports and they had all kinds of things, but this kind of learning how to be confident and independent in the kitchen, it just didn't happen for us. The idea of learning it as a, like a foundational life skill, I just think is so empowering and so fantastic. And I just love the idea, even though it's not my kids, that so many other children will be given that opportunity through Little Kitchen. And that's just why I loved it so much right from the beginning. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. You've probably heard the old saying, with age comes wisdom. But a lot of people don't know the other half of that quote, which is, but sometimes age comes alone. Now, for me, the difference between the two has everything to do with a willingness to learn. In my experience, the people who have the most wisdom to share are those who remain open to more learning themselves. In fact, if you've listened to previous episodes of this podcast, you've repeatedly heard guests talk about how much the instructors at Little Kitchen Academy end up learning from their students. It's the kind of environment that Caroline Irving wants to be a part of, let alone replicate. Caroline wears multiple hats at Little Kitchen Academy. She's a global investor, the area representative for the province of Ontario, and the owner of a Little Kitchen Academy franchise in Vaughan. Caroline and her husband, Mike Downey, recently agreed to meet me in the kitchen for arguably the most wide-ranging conversation we've ever had on this podcast. One that includes their shared pursuit of lifelong learning, how Little Kitchen Academy aligns with their values, and the profound effect that truth and reconciliation has had on their family. I know you guys think this is just about Little Kitchen Academy, but it has come to my attention that the two of you have raised five children. Is this in fact correct? <laughs> yes. Five. It's it's a miracle, and we're and we're still happily married. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was been quite an adventure for us. We had five kids under the age of seven, and we had three boys, and then we had twin girls. So it was quite a shock to go from three kids to five kids. So I should be here presenting you with the Order of Canada and not doing an interview about <laughs> anything else. <laughs> well, as I like to say, we're still standing, and you know now they're grown up. All of them, actually. Our twins are 19, and we count our blessings every day. They're fantastic, fun, interesting young people, and we enjoy every moment with them that we get to spend with them now. A lot of them have left the nest, but we really enjoy it. It's a whirlwind, I can imagine. I have two of my own. I love them both. But as you guys know, kids are at times a handful, and parents are always seeking advice. I'm sure with having raised five children, You've been asked for advice on multiple occasions. What advice do you generally offer other parents? You know, it's funny. I think I probably like to give advice, although most of the time nobody takes it. But I will say, I think the one thing that we learned for having this large sample size is most of the back and forth, most of the things that seem really big aren't that big. And if you can just sort of weather the storm, especially I think when the kids are teenagers, if you can just sort of weather the storm and kind of keep 
your comments sort of short and to the point and not get into the big diatribes and you have no idea and all that. You do well, I think, because most of that just kind of goes away. It's like the tide, you know, it comes in and it goes out. I think that's the one thing that I mentioned too, especially people with teenagers, because they seem to be so at their wits end. And you just say, you know, most of this stuff is just going to go away. And you don't really have to solve that much besides keeping them safe and keeping them going to school every day and that kind of stuff. So, but I don't know. <laughs> Those were dark days. <laughs> well, I think the other thing too is though, and again, because we have such a large sample size, it's, it's really clear that they just come out the way they are, you know, and so you can have the same two parents in the same environment and mm-hmm. they truly are just their very own people. Mm-hmm. And all you can really do is help them to become their best selves. You're not going to change them or alter them in any significant way. All you can do is love them and support them and, and try and model the kind of behavior you would like. But the fact is they're going to be their own people and live their own lives. And that's half the fun actually is watching them become who they're meant to be. And Mm -hmm. we've had a front row seat for five of them. So we're, we're pretty lucky. Yeah. Yes, you have. And Caroline, I think that's a nice segue into Little Kitchen Academy and your involvement. I'm wondering what elements of your experience as a parent and raising five children align with the values that present themselves at Little Kitchen Academy. Well, I love everything about Little Kitchen Academy. Just all of it speaks to me on a personal level, especially as a mom. I have to make a full confession here. I'm not a very good cook, and I didn't do a very good job of teaching my children how to cook. We were completely overwhelmed and outmanned and outgunned. So when I first heard about and saw Little Kitchen, my first reaction was I wish it had been around when my kids were little. I mean, we would have put all five of our kids in it from age three to all the way to 18, all the way through. I just knew as a mom that it was something that I could really have used and that would have been so beneficial to my kids and that it was definitely something that had been lacking in their life. You know, they had sports and they had all kinds of things, but this kind of learning how to be confident and independent in the kitchen, it just didn't happen for us. And so now they're learning how to cook. The idea of learning it as like a foundational life skill, I just think is so empowering and so fantastic. And I just love the idea, even though it's not my kids, that so many other children will be given that opportunity through Little Kitchen. And that's just why I loved it so much right from the beginning. Caroline, how did Little Kitchen Academy first come onto your radar? It's actually kind of a really sweet story. I had exited my previous business and was feeling, you know, a lot of gratitude for my life and the opportunities that have been presented to me. And especially as a female entrepreneur, I became an entrepreneur really, really late in life. I like to say I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I fell into it, as I say, much later in life and had to learn a lot really quickly and really relied on other people helping me. And that's all I ever did was ask for help. You know, who can teach me I don't know this. How can I learn? How can I grow? How can I run this business? And so I wanted to give a little something back to women entrepreneurs who are just getting started. And I, as a sort of a birthday gift, really to myself, I offered to give some grants to young female entrepreneurs who are getting started. And and I got an application from Haley and Amen in the beach, who are the Little Kitchen Academy franchisees here in the beach. And I thought, well, this looks fantastic. You know, what a great idea. I need to look into this and make sure, you know, who are these little kitchen people? Uh, (laughs) And so that's how I found out about it. I, of course, gave the grant to Haley because I loved her and she's such an amazing woman. And that's how I ended up meeting Felicity and Brian. And that's really just where it started. 
I'd like to follow up on that because as you mentioned, it was important to you as a female entrepreneur to give back to other female entrepreneurs. Little Kitchen Academy is Felicity's baby. It's what she created, the concept itself. What impact did that have on your decision to pursue this opportunity, Caroline? Well, it had a big impact on me, actually. And meeting her was really instrumental in my deciding to go forward with it. And I know I talked to Mike about this quite a bit at the time. First of all, she's fantastic and lovely and so purpose-driven and passionate about this. But also, it's just so nice to see a woman you know, stepping into the next phase of her life in the way that she is. And I really recognized that in myself also. You know, I had been home for several years before I, you know, became an entrepreneur. And, you know, we really related to each other in the idea of how we were going to suddenly be showing ourselves to our communities, to our family, to our children. And I know Felicity feels the same way that she feels really good about her daughter seeing her in this position of strength and power and changing the world and making the world a better place. It's fantastic to be that kind of role model for women in front of their children. So I'm really excited for her and really proud of her. And I know she's really going to take this really far. Mike, Caroline mentioned that you two talked through this a lot when you were in the initial exploratory stages of it. What's your role? Is it one of support? Is it something beyond that? What role do you play in this whole Little Kitchen Academy equation? Yeah, it's really a, a support role, Scott. When Caroline first told me about it, I just got it, you know, instantly what the idea was and what the opportunity was as well. Yeah, it just made so much sense to me. Again, if our kids had been young at the time, you know, when this started, we would have had our kids there. So yeah, I, I just right away when Caroline told me about it, I was really blown away by the the idea of it. And then you kind of think about it for a second. It's like, wow, it's amazing. This hasn't existed for 30 or 40 years. I mean, really, it's so elemental. You know, it's just such a brilliant idea. And then when I started to see, you know, some of the material and some of the video of the already up and running Little Kitchen Academies, I was like, wow, this is really high level. And it's been really well designed and thought out every detail. Every time we Caroline would show me something new. I'm like, oh my God, that's so, you know, well constructed and just really well laid out. So yeah, I, my role is is that of uh, support and cheerleader for sure. <laughs> the best cheerleader. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't purport to know either of you, yourself included, Mike, but having looked through your resume and your work history, it does appear that there is a purpose-driven thread behind the projects that you've been involved with. And while you're not directly involved with this on a day-to-day -day basis, how important was that to you, that this was purpose-driven and it aligned with your personal values? Very much so, Scott. And you're so lucky when you can find something that you know really fits with you. So if I'm trying to come up with a new documentary film idea, you know, sometimes you throw the net out pretty wide and, and sometimes there's an idea that maybe doesn't really, you know, come from who you are, but just there's a good timing aspect and it goes ahead. But it's really rare, I think, when you find something that's a good fit with you and your sort of background, your career, but something that also can play a function for other people, can have this purpose. And I guess the one that really stands out for me is a project called Secret Path, where my brother Gordon and I decided to try to figure out a way to tell the story of this young boy who had run away from his residential school, Chani Wenjack, and along with the Wenjack family, we came up with this project that was, you know, a, an album that Gord recorded, a graphic novel that Jeff Lemire created out of Gord's album, and then ultimately the animated film with documentary on the top and tail 
that sort of tied it all together, which was something that I was very involved in, sort of all steps of it, but definitely the film part of it. So that was something that just had so much purpose, had so much impact. It really changed my life and it changed the life of our family as well, because we didn't really understand what reconciliation was at the time. And, you know, usually these film projects, they kind of come and go, they can have a really big impact on you. But, you know, life moves on. And the next, you know, thing is coming down the pipe. But this one is something that's, you know, really altered, you know, the way that I see my role, you know, and, and the way I see my country, you know, so the Downey Wenjack Fund or Foundation is a direct result of Secret Path. And yeah, I think for Caroline and I, you know, we were so involved with raising our kids for so many years. And then just as the dust started to settle a little bit, you know, as Caroline, you know, got into, you know, running a large company and, you know, I got into some of these larger film projects, it was really interesting the way you kind of just took a lot of that energy that you'd been using on the family, especially when they're young, and now start transferred almost in a parental way. You know, when I say that, I just sort of mean in a way that you give as much of yourself as you can, and you don't expect a lot back sometimes, you know, <laughs> like like the true badge of being a parent, you know, like you do what you do, and maybe you don't worry so much about, you know, what you feel like you're getting in return. And then uh, sometimes the way it works out, especially when you're involved with something that has importance and purpose, well, of course, you know what you get back. You get back the world and more because you're a part of something. So the last few years have been very interesting for us, Scott. For those who don't know, Gord, your late brother is Gord Downey, lead singer of The Tragically Hip, a name very familiar to certainly Canadians and those abroad as well. Caroline, Mike mentioned that creating Secret Path changed your life changed your family's life. What impact did you see it have on your family? Well, like many Canadians of our generation, and certainly even our children, I have to just confess my complete lack of knowledge about how Canada had treated or continues to treat our Indigenous people. And I knew almost nothing about the residential school system. As Gord actually said, people have been trained their whole lives to ignore them. And so learning about this really dark kind of part of our history was so eye-opening for us as a family. And to get to know so many fantastic Indigenous people through this project of Mike's and Gord's has been one of the great gifts of my life. I've learned so much and it's been so instructive for our kids who see the world or see Canada in a whole different light now in a much smarter, clearer way that I think is what's really going to change the country, right? It's this new generation. And, and what the Downey Wenjack Fund is doing through their school projects and their huge outreach is kind of like what Little Kitchen is doing. It's teaching our young children, well, the truth and giving them power. And, you know, when you teach a child something, they'll know it forever. Mm -hmm. And so that's what your fund is doing in terms of the history of this country. And, you know, there's Little Kitchen, on the other hand, same thing, giving these young children the ability to develop their confidence and their independence. And it's all about learning. And, and children are sponges. So give them the right information, sunlight and water and good information, and they're going to turn into the leaders of the future. So I would say that's one of the big impacts for our family is, mm -hmm. is just the knowing. Well, and you just said it, and I certainly connected the same dots that you did, Caroline. Well, the Downey Wenjack Foundation and Little Kitchen Academy may reach different children. It's about having a positive impact on children. It's about empowerment. It's about knowledge. And I'm wondering just the way you two described your family change, what you believe in, 
if Caroline, you just consider that one of your core pillars, your core beliefs, positive impact on children through everything we do. Absolutely. You know, I think that runs through every mother and every father. But as Mike was alluding to earlier, as your children grow and as you grow, you start to think larger. You know, you're not just so focused on your nuclear family and getting through the day without, you know, losing your mind or yelling at your kids. And that you have so much time on this earth. And what are you going to do with it? And what kind of impact are you going to have? And how can you leave it a, a better place? And I think a lot of the work that we've been doing in the last few years is about that. And I think it's important for our children to see us working on these kind of projects and leaning into things that feel important and doing good work and being a good community member and being a good parent and being a good friend and being a good Canadian. All those things have more and more weight the older I get. And I feel it in a way that, that I really like. And I'm really excited for this next chapter. I think there's a lot of amazing things that are going to be happening, and I'm, I'm really excited to be part of it. For those who perhaps don't understand the entire scope of this question, they may think this is a strange place to insert it in our conversation, but it's the question everybody who comes on this podcast gets asked. So Caroline, I'm actually going to ask it of you now. What is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen and why? I'm not going to say a food or a spice. I'm going to say, which is really the truth, is curiosity. I consider myself to be a forever learner and a forever student. And I'm curious about everything. There's not a thing I don't want to learn. And hopefully that leads me to becoming a better cook. I've actually gotten to be a much better cook over the last few years, right? Yeah, for uh -huh, sure. I know. I've gotten sure. much better. I'm really enjoying it. But yeah, I would say curiosity. I, I really think that is the key to actually having a great life. Never assuming you know everything and constantly searching for, to learn new things, being a good listener. Caroline, that's a beautiful parallel between Little Kitchen Academy and your own curiosity being a forever learner, because that's really what children embody. They are curious about everything and they are sponges, as you referenced earlier. They want to soak everything up. How about you, Mike? What is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen and why? The one ingredient that's always in my kitchen is peanut butter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's very, you know, when I say that, I'm I'm not being facetious. Peanut butter, I grew up in a large, a family of five, five children in the Downey household growing up outside of Kingston, a little place called Amherstview. And mom didn't drive. And grocery shopping day was Thursday. And I think Gord, I think he was in a drama class once and he did a, a little piece on the smell of grocery bags coming into the house on Thursdays after school and and when they were a little bit wet maybe from the rain and, and the way the kitchen would fill up with just the smell of paper bags that held all these groceries and of course we would all die for the peanut butter immediately and we would have it first thing in the morning and we'd have it before we went to bed at night so it's kind of when I have it today a little piece of toast with peanut butter on it it, it kind of connects me with my you know, I could get emotional about it, Scott. It, it, it kind of connects to me with, you know, my first family and, and my kids are all into peanut butter too. I'm very proud <laughs> of that. So proud of that. And I guess, you know, to tie back to, you know, LKA, I guess we can do better than peanut butter going forward. You know, like it worked for me, uh, but maybe a few of those skills in the kitchen of, you know, looking into uh, a cupboard or into the fridge and imagining a, a meal that you could pull together. Yeah, I think that might be a little bit more useful, but peanut butter can take you a long way for sure. It can. And you have actually inadvertently provided me with a great segue because you are the second guest of this podcast to say <laughs> peanut butter. And the previous guest who said it 
is a young man by the name of Charlie Anthony. And guess where he studies? He studies at Queen's University. Uh-huh. And you two are both Queen's grads. Mm-hmm. So this gives me an opportunity to ask you about your origin story. I believe that's where you two met. Mike, how did you two first come into contact? Well, the first time we met was my brother Gordon and I were out for dinner with my parents. It was a late summer in 86. And a guy dropped by the table named John Wellner, who I just met like a few days earlier, but Gord knew him through Queens. I didn't really know. It was the end of summer. He'd been working at this bar at the Prince George Hotel, very famous watering hole in Kingston. And said, I'm moving back to Toronto. You know, I'm going to start my career. He'd graduated. But there's going to be a little after hours party, you know, for me in the bar, dollar bills in the back. Anyway, so we had this nice dinner with my parents and then they went home and, you know, I said to Gord, what are you going to do? He said, oh, I got something else to do. I'm going to go somewhere. And I said, you know, I might, I might stick around and see about this after hours. I don't think I had any money. That was the other thing too. I think I was like, well, I bet it'll be free drinks afterwards. <laughs> so, so anyway, I remember I went down by the waterfront in Kingston, just laid down. It was, you know, beautiful summer night, just laid down on the grass. I think I might've had a nap, you know, killing time till after one o'clock. And then I walked into this place alone and saw John behind the bar. Sure enough, you know, got a drink. And there was a really beautiful young woman sitting a couple of seats down. And I think John noticed me looking at her a couple of times. And Caroline was friends with John. And he finally said, Mike, would you like to meet my friend Caroline? I said, I really would. So we met that night and had a dance. And that's uh, the end of the story. That's the end of the story. That's where we'll leave I was story. going to wrap it up. And the song was I'm a Believer by the Monkees. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That was our first so, dance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Very nice. Now, Caroline, Mike told the origin story, but then there's been this whole journey since we've covered the kids aspect of it. How would you describe the journey of your partnership together over the last nearly four decades? It's been the best thing that's ever happened to me, honestly. We're such a great team. Mm-hmm. And... I've learned so much from Mike. He's also a forever learner. And I think that kind of curiosity has always just inspired me. He's also made me laugh every single day for for 36 years, whatever it is now, which is really good because, you know, I can get a little intense and like, you know, on the ceiling and he'll say something funny and make it all better. So, you know, truthfully, we really grew up together. When I met Mike, I was 21. I was basically a baby. And we have gone through pretty much everything you can go through as a couple. And we have five children together and we've, you know, seen some very sad times. I've lost both my parents. He's lost his dad. He lost his brother. We have also experienced great joy together. And I feel like we are just getting better all the time, which is really great. And I feel Mm -hmm. really grateful and lucky for that. I imagine you did not know at the time that you were marrying into Canadian music royalty, as it were, with, the, with what the Tragically Hip became. What impact, Caroline, has music had on your life? Oh, we love music so much. It's such a central part to our existence as a couple and as a family. And in fact, I mean, I knew Gord before I met Mike. He was going out with my best friend. So yeah, I, I knew him for years before I met Mike. And so we actually had this sort of hilarious summer where <laughs> he got back together with his old girlfriend, my best friend, and Mike and I had started going out together. So there was sort of the four of us in this apartment. <laughs> Mike's like, what are you doing here, Gordon? Gordon's like, well, what are you doing here? Yeah. I don't know, what, what the hell? <laughs> I was like, 
<laughs> my girlfriend. Well, that's my girlfriend. So we spent a lot of time together. I loved Gord very, very much. I loved him very much. And I miss him. I miss him terribly. But he, in those early years, they were just playing little hole in the wall bars in Kingston. And but even back then it was clear that he was something special. You know, everybody wanted to go and see Gord sing and his band. And it was always electric. He always just blew the roof off of every place he played, even back then. And so I mean, I guess it was not a surprise that they became the iconic band that they became. But because I saw it so up close, so incrementally, it just never really surprised me because I think it became what it was meant to become. I mean, they were just that good from from the very beginning. So it was fun to have that ringside seat for sure. I read an interview that Mike conducted with someone talking about Gord's dancing and how it was so captivating you couldn't take your eyes off him. Is Mike the same way? Does Mike have those kind of moves? Mike is an amazing dancer. <laughs> He's going to be so happy you asked that question. <laughs> Their whole family actually are incredible dancers. Like everybody loves to dance. Mike's dad is Irish. And so there is just that kind of natural love of music, love of fun, love of family, love of friends. And going anywhere with the Downies is always a good time. Ah. I'm sure it is. And there is a movement segue I can use here now because... In your prior business life, Caroline, part of it includes bringing the Sky Zone franchise to Canada. And Sky Zone for the Uninitiated is a trampoline park that has more than 200 franchises now. You've worked with a franchise system before. Little Kitchen Academy, also a franchise system. What about the model appeals to you from that perspective? Well, I think it's the perfect way to, you know, get into business if you, you know, are looking for a little support and a little help and, you know, people who can provide you with a platform from which to launch. So for me, what was perfect about SkyZone was I had no prior business experience and it was a system that was already working and you know, had a website and it had marketing materials and it had people who could tell me how to, you know, help me and support me. And they did. And it became very, very successful. I was very fortunate with it. And so I have a lot of respect for the franchise model because it really allows people who are, you know, just ready to try something new, who want to become entrepreneurs. It gives them a great place to start, but not way back from the start line, you know, it sort of gets you halfway down the field. And then of course, you have to run it across the line yourself. But it's a great way to get started and to feel supported in a new business. Well, as an old football player myself, I appreciate the reference there that you tied <laughs> in. I, I really do. And I'm sure some Golden Gales alum out there will appreciate <laughs> it as well. I'm also curious as to what you learned through your experience with SkyZone that also informs your approach to not only overseeing all of the Ontario locations, Caroline, but also opening your own little kitchen academy. I think you're probably going to notice a few themes here, Scott, which is I learned so much because I wanted to learn so much. When you ask people for help, it's incredible what people will do. And so in my first business with SkyZone, as I said, because I had no business experience, I really had to ask for a lot of help. And that's how I learned. And so now with Little Kitchen, I will never stop asking for help. But I think it's that mindset that will help me be successful with it. And I believe that anybody who approaches their business in that way, where they don't feel like they have to know the answer to everything, where they feel confident enough to say, you know what, I don't understand that. Can you please explain that to me? Or how can I do that better? If you go into business with that kind of mindset, I really believe you're going to be successful rather than trying to pretend 
that you know everything or trying to wear every hat because it's really hard to be good at everything. And when you surround yourself with people who can help you grow and who can teach you things, and that's that's really when you're going to be successful. So I hope to be able to offer some kind of mentorship myself, you know, having been through it before. And I believe I can, you know, support and help people as they develop their businesses. So I'm hoping that I can sort of give back in that way too. I'm sure that you can. And what you just described with asking questions and wanting to know more and being a learner, honestly, to me, could have been the way Mike describes what he does with documentaries. Mike, I'm wondering how much has that been the genesis for the projects you've taken on? And what is it about a subject or a person or whatever you choose to pursue with your documentaries that turns a light bulb on or makes you curious? It's interesting. You know, I think that the one thing I've found, Scott, is, and I try to apply this to everyday life, you know, if you take the time to ask somebody a question, which is the easy part, if you invest the time to listen to their answer, I think what you'll find is that just about everybody that you meet has a story. If you scratch the surface, you're going to find something, and it can be quite surprising and sometimes even shocking what you learn about people when you slow down enough to inquire and then to really listen and then to follow up, of course. So, you know, that kind of means that what you're doing is you're sort of subverting expectation. You, you know, you go, oh, yeah, I know that guy. That, yeah, that guy's, you know, because I think we, in our day-to-day -day life, we're looking for the shorthand and we're looking for ways to really simplify things. So you want to categorize people and you want to put them into a place so that you can sort of move on. But by getting to know people a little bit and by asking good questions, like go a little bit deeper, like not just the basic sports and weather, you go a little deeper, you're going to find that person probably has something to tell you and then they might just blow your mind. So you're kind of subverting, you know, the idea of what does an interesting person look like. And I've tried to take that, you know, into my work as much as possible. I like to describe myself as a professional listener and you can ask Caroline, I do like to talk. I, I do like <laughs> to talk. Harsh. It's I have to work at it. <laughs> but when you start to listen and you use your airtime to just poke and just sort of keep it going or figure out a way to get somebody to go a little bit deeper, it's always worth it. It's always worth it. So, I mean, the films that I've had a chance to do have taught me this again and again and again. You know, and then I guess the other part of it is you know, when you're talking to somebody, what can you do professionally, but then, you know, just on your own, what can you do to bring out their best? I'm putting somebody on camera. I'm asking them to be on camera. They're not actors. And I'm going to ask them then to really, as much as they can, to sort of bear their soul. Well, what can I do to make that? It's never easy, but what can I do to make that happen? What I've learned is you got to share something of yourself. If you want them to be vulnerable, you need to be vulnerable. So in a way, it's kind of taught me how to, I think, just not have too many sacred cows. I, I like to think I'm open in conversation. I like to think that I'm available. And like I said, in the interview setting, that's exactly what I'm expecting and hoping for and working towards for the, the subject who's on camera. I like to think about those kind of broad strokes because I think those are just good life lessons. You know, it's funny too, because we always talk about communication. Communication is so much about what you take in. You know, it's so much about listening and, and taking in. But I think all of us just get caught up in trying to figure out how we're going to craft the message and how we're going to put it out. I think in many ways, it's, it's kind of the opposite. Like how much can you take in? I agree. And I think with what 
the two of you just said in your last couple of answers, it's very informative as to how this country approaches truth and reconciliation, which we spoke about earlier in this conversation. It is about being vulnerable, vulnerable enough to say, I don't know, and I don't have an answer, but I'm willing to listen. And I am going to be here to hear you out, which is something that hasn't happened for quite some time. Is that often the advice that you offer people who are trying or have the intent to want to help, but don't know what to do? Yeah, pretty much. You know, here's the thing that we at the Downey Wayjack Fund, we talk about, and it's been an education for me too, because I didn't know this, Gordon, I didn't know this when we started in 2012. There's sort of three steps in reconciliation, very, very basic, almost in anything. But, you know, there's the first step, which is awareness. And the second step, which is education. And then the third step is action. What happens is when you get to that awareness, like, oh my God, I can't believe this. There's an instinct that you want to jump right to that action because you can see that there's injustice or you can see that there's some failure and that you want to go there. So that's one of the things that we sort of talk about is that take the time to go into the education part, which can take a long time, but just where you're basically taking in as much as you can, you're trying to understand as much as you can about this subject of reconciliation. Then when, and you'll know it, when it's time to move into that action step or phase is to try to stay in your lane. So I tell people this, you know, in different settings, you know, if you're a parent, Maybe you find out what's going on at school, what's going on in your child's classroom. What are they learning about reconciliation? What are they learning about indigenous culture and language and history? And that's a really good place to start. Well, what's next at hand? It's like, well, where do you work? You know, what's going on at work? Do they have anything, any kind of affirmative action? Well, for finding indigenous employees or training people to be a part of your company or suppliers. So And then what I find that what happens is, is that the main thing is to be signing up for the long haul, which again, if you're kind of jumping to the action, you're coming in hot, looking for the fix. The fix is, you know, as Gordy said on the stage in Kingston at his last, you know, tragically hip show, it's going to take us a hundred years. And I, I think he's probably about right. And even that requires, you know, that we all keep on the path and we keep, you know, moving forward. But, you know, like I said, I think what it's really about is starting to walk down this path and and start to, you know, try to, as much as possible, take it in. This is the thing that really blows my mind, Scott, is that I think sometimes with reconciliation, we start to think of it as like medicine. As, you know, colonialists, we just did all these terrible things and, and it's true. And so now we need to sort of, we need to reconcile and there's this guilt and shame and well, that's part of the process for sure. But really what is waiting is an incredible gift, which is the lesson of this culture, which I will say right now, it kind of came up earlier when we were talking. One of the biggest lessons, and there's many, is gratitude. Gratitude is something that is in the indigenous culture on a really cellular level. It's not thank you. It is a gratitude for the sunrise in the morning. You know, there is a uh, Every part of your life, the, the water is something that you're grateful for and something that has been provided for you. And then you're grateful for all of your ancestors that came before you that got you to this point. Well, these are incredible themes for anyone. You think about what is the sort of most important thing you could recognize in another person. It's gratitude. You know, like you've got something to be grateful for, you know, any relationship that you're in. 
And so I just tie that back to this idea of like what's waiting. And what's waiting, I think, is especially in the sped up digital age that we live in, I think there are lessons and there are gifts waiting for those that are willing to walk this path and learn more and more about, as I said, the history, the culture, the language, because I think that those, you know, those lessons are as relevant today as they've ever been. And we know they've been around for thousands and thousands of years. They predate every religion. They predate everything. This is ancient man speaking to us about what's important. So I think it's something that when people that are getting involved with reconciliation, it's like, get ready for a long but important journey. And you'll never walk alone. You'll be surrounded by like-minded people that are different points in the journey, but are seeking the same kind of thing, which is just a greater understanding of what we're all doing here. And I certainly wouldn't begin to equate the classes at Little Kitchen Academy with what our country is going through in terms of a reckoning. But I think there are some things you mentioned in that answer that can be tied to what is being taught at Little Kitchen Academy with empowerment, with learning, with vulnerability, with community at the end of each lesson. With gratitude, in fact, Caroline, is that one of the things you hope those students come out of each class, each fall, winter, spring session with is a gratitude for more than just what they came in with? I know that they're going to come out with that. I think the lessons from Little Kitchen Academy are really profound. So it's not just learning how to cook. It's learning about taking care of this planet about a circular economy. It's about where does your food come from? Just even learning those basics, learning that certain foods are in season, you know, that there's there's a harvest. What does the spring bring us? What does the fall bring us? What does the winter bring us? Learning that mother nature provides in a spectacular way, but in a way that we need to respect. And so learning that respect for our planet, learning that respect for our bodies, teaching them, you know, that good food is good for their bodies, teaching them to give back through the give back program. You know, children learning these things at such a young age is going to impact them forever. And so they'll have the gratitude for the food that they made, but they'll also have gratitude for where it came from. And then they'll have gratitude for sitting around with their fellow students and sharing a meal together. So the community of it, there's just so many layers to what is happening in those little kitchen academy environments that, well, I know that I I just think are, are amazing. And you can't really find that everywhere for your children. And so I believe that it's just got so many different fantastic layers to it that I'm I'm really excited about. Many of the elements that you just described are what we find in a memorable experience as well, whether that's a dinner we have together or a concert we experience together, any type of memory that brings a smile to your face. Caroline, is there one that stands out for you or a couple that stand out for you over the years? Maybe something that falls into a category I mentioned, maybe it's with your family and and one that incorporates some of those elements you just described? Funnily enough, I will say I'm going to come back to dancing here because the thing, for whatever reason, that has brought me so much joy over the last few years is whenever I see our children dancing together. And there's something about that that fills my heart with joy. First of all, that they feel free enough and happy enough to just express themselves in that way. Secondly, that they are doing it together, that they're showing love and affection and laughing and dancing. There's just something so beautiful about that. 
I mean, I think the last time we saw that was a couple of years ago and Mike and I just hung back and we had our arms around each other, just watching our five kids dance and laugh. And it's just really those simple little moments of family that really bring me so much joy. That certainly resonates with me. That puts a smile on my face. I will be vulnerable here and tell the both of you that we have seen the movie Sing probably 10 or 15 times. And at the end of every single viewing, it's me, my girls, my wife, all up dancing, the dog barking and jumping with all of us. And <laughs> it's such a heartwarming experience. And dancing was something we talked about a little earlier, Mike, when we were talking about Gord. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the upcoming documentary that you have about your late brother, Gord Downey, and the tragically hip. What can you share at this time? Well, I can tell you, Scott, we're really well into it. We pitched a four-part documentary series to Amazon Prime. They picked it up almost immediately. They've been fantastic uh, partner. And we have just sent off our first episode rough cut to first to the band members, the four surviving band members who are producers on the doc series and just sent it off to Amazon. And we've got a great response from Amazon. They, they really love it. And, you know, it's going to be a four part series. I'm used to working with stories that need a fair bit of help. Like I've done we have a fair bit of nature and science. Like they're, you know, sometimes it's a complicated subject. Like it just, it requires a lot of, you know, you're kind of really working with the dough. This uh, hip story, although there's always challenges, the built-in story is so strong. For example, they all come from the small little town called Kingston, which happens to be a prison town and a university town and, uh, and a few other things as well. And, you know, they all went to the same high school. They were there all at the same time for a year. And then there's just so much about it that really resonates. So, you know, I've had a chance to interview this year, or sorry, in 2022, I probably did 60, 65 interviews. I cried at a bunch of them, most of them probably. Most people I interviewed cried at some point, not just for the loss of Gord and the band, but that's obviously very, very central. But often the tears were about just a kind of a joyful reflection about a really wonderful time in many of our lives. I think perhaps also, you know, when you have a friend or a sibling chasing their dream and catching up to it has a powerful effect on you because you're thinking, well, when they're, you know, just small town guys, well, if they can do it, why can't I? Or maybe I can. And so it can have this effect on you where you go, well, what do I want to do with my life? You know, at that young age in your early 20s. And I think for a lot of the people that I was talking to, that was sort of part of the, you know, the currency that, that was being exchanged back and forth was this idea of like, these guys opened up a lot of potential for a lot of people. And they did that for the rest of their careers. They opened up for a lot of Canadians. They created a kind of a humble patriotism for them. They made them think about our Canadian stories as being really worthy, not something that, you know, oh, you better not do that. You'll never make it, you know, in the States. They, they won't understand it. Well, that's kind of what happened to them in the, in the early days and at different parts throughout their career. I don't think they cared. They were like, well, what else are we going to sing about? You know, like we need to tell our story. It needs to, first of all, it needs to resonate for us as a band, you know, and then, and for Gord, I guess, because he's writing the lyrics and then for the band and then for the next, you know, circle. So yeah, I, I think that, you know, as we're working on this documentary, I'm just being, 
Well, some things I'm being reminded of and some things I just flat didn't know, you know, and I'm learning so much about my brother. You know, he was so prolific. They're up to 14 studio records and Gord just, you know, my brother Patrick just packaged up his last solo record, one with Bob Rock. It's his seventh solo record. Like I've been working on this project for a couple of years now. I feel like I'm just catching up now to a bunch of hip music and Gord music that you know, and I guess we had families that, you know, small children at the time, but I'm like, oh my God, this song on this record that came out in 2004, it's just blowing my mind. Like, I can't believe how deep it is. So the experience of working on this, of going into people's homes and talking about my brother and learning about him and learning about his four great friends, the rest of the hip has just been an experience. I'll never have this experience again in my life. And I'm I'm getting choked up, but I, I'm so grateful that I get to be a part of this. I think you're going to love it. Like I, I'm so blown away by this first episode, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I was pretty involved in it. <laughs> and I'm, a, I've watched it a couple of times. Man, that is really good. Well, the story's really good, and and they're great storytellers as well. So I got to tell you, it doesn't come out till 2024, but I think it's going to be a real cause for celebration for a lot of Canadians. I think it's really going to connect them to this band, and to this country, and to what that whole experience really was all about. So. As you can tell, I'm pretty excited about it, Scott. Well, this has been my pleasure. As we segue one more time here to learn a little bit about your story and to meet the two of you today and to have this conversation, I'm very grateful that you were willing to share it with me and that you were both willing to be vulnerable and have the conversation. Thank you both very much for doing this, and I wish you nothing but success in the future. Oh, Thank you so much, Scott. We really enjoyed speaking with you. What a pleasure. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen?